and Superman by George Bernard Shaw. Act 1. London, England, 1903. Roebuck Ramsden is in his study, opening the morning letters. The study proclaims the man of means. Not a speck of dust is visible. It is clear that there are at least two housemaids and a parlourmaid downstairs, and a housekeeper upstairs who does not let them spare elbow grease. Even the top of Roebuck's head is polished. On a sunshiny day, he could heliograph his orders to distant camps by merely nodding. Roebuck Ramsden is more than a highly respectable man. He is marked out as a president of highly respectable men, a chairman among directors. He wears a black frock coat, a white waistcoat, it being spring, and quietly striped trousers. He has always classed himself as an advanced thinker and a fearlessly outspoken reformer. And he believes in the fine arts with all the earnestness of a man who does not understand them. A parlourmaid appears at the door. Mr. Robinson, sir. Mr. Robinson, who appears at the door of the study, is an uncommonly nice-looking young fellow. The slim, shapely frame, the elegant suit of new morning, the pretty little moustache, the frank, clear eyes, the wholesome bloom and the youthful complexion, all announce the man who will love and suffer. Well, Octavius, it's the common lot. We must all face it some day. Uh, sit down. I owed him a great deal. He did everything for me that my father could have done if he had lived. Oh, he had no son of his own, you see. Oh, but he had daughters, and yet he was as good to my sister Violet as to me. And his death was sudden. I always intended to thank him, but I waited and... Oh! Oh, come. Don't grieve. The last time I saw him, he said... Uh, Tavy is the soul of honour. When I see how little consideration other men get from their sons, I realise how much better than a son he's been to me. There, doesn't that do you good? Well, he used to say to me that he'd only met one man in the world with the soul of honour, and that was Roebuck Ramsden. Oh, we were very old friends, you know. But there was something else he used to say about you. Something about his daughter. About Anne? Oh, do tell me that. Well, he said he was glad, after all, you were not his son, because he thought that someday Annie and you... Octavius blushes quite vividly. Oh, if only I thought I had a chance. Oh, nonsense, my boy. You're too modest. Besides, she's a wonderfully dutiful girl, and her father's wish would be sacred to her. Do you know, I don't believe she has ever once given her own reason for doing anything. It's always father wishes me to, or mother wouldn't like it. It's really almost a fault in her. I couldn't ask her to marry me because her father wished it, Mr. Ramsden. Well, perhaps not. No, I see that. You certainly couldn't. But when you win her on your own merits, it will be a great happiness to her to fulfill her father's desires as well as her own. Huh? Come, you'll ask her, won't you? At all events, I shall never ask anyone else. Oh, you shan't need to. She'll accept you, my boy. Although you do have one great drawback. What drawback? I should say, rather, which of my many drawbacks? I'll tell you, Octavius. I have in my hand a copy of the most infamous, most scandalous book. I have not read it. I would not soil my mind. But I have read what the papers say of it. The title is quite enough. The Revolutionist's Handbook and Pocket Companion by John Tanner. M-I-R-C, member of the idle rich class. But Jack is... For goodness sake, don't call him Jack under my roof. Now, Octavius, I know that this man was your schoolfellow, but I ask you to consider the altered circumstances. You are treated as a son in my friend's house, 
This Tanner was in and out on your account and addresses Annie by her Christian name nearly as freely as you do. Well, while her father was alive, that was his business. But now her father is gone, and while we don't know the exact terms of his will, I have no doubt it appoints me Annie's guardian. I won't have Annie placed in such a position. But Anne herself has told Jack that whatever his opinions are, he will always be welcome because he knew her dear father. Oh, that girl's mad about her duty to her parents. The parlourmaid returns. But, Mr. Anne... Yes. Well? Mr. Tanner wishes to see you, sir. M Mr. Tanner? Jack? How dare he call on me? Say I cannot see him. I am sorry you're turning my friend from your door like that. He's not at the door, sir. Uh, He's in the drawing room with Miss Ramsden. He came with Mrs. Whitefield, Miss Anne Whitefield, and Miss Violet Robinson, sir. That's very like Jack. Well, you must see him, even if it's only to turn him out. Uh, Birdie, go upstairs and ask Mr. Tanner to be good enough to step down here. Yes, sir. What impertinence! Well... If these are anarchist manners, I hope you like them. Mr. John Tanner soon opens the door and enters. He is prodigiously fluent of speech, restless, excitable. Mark the snorting nostril and the restless blue eye, just the 32nd of an inch, too wide open. Possibly a little mad. A sensitive, exaggerative, earnest man. A megalomaniac who would be lost without a sense of humour. To say that he is excited is nothing. All his moods are phases of excitement. He is now in the panic-stricken phase. Ramsden, do you know what this is? No, sir. It's a copy of Whitefield's will. Anne got it this morning. When you say Anne, you mean, I presume, Miss Whitefield. I mean our Anne. Your Anne, Tammy's Anne, and now, heaven help me, my Anne. Do you know who is appointed Anne's guardian by this will? I believe I am. You... And I, man, both of us. Impossible. Ramsden, get me out of it. You don't know Anne as well as I do. She'll commit every crime a respectable woman can, and she'll justify every one of them by saying it was the wish of her guardians. She'll put everything on us, and we shall have no more control over her than a couple of mice over a cat. Jack, I wish you wouldn't talk like that about Anne. This chap's in love with her. That's another complication. She'll either jilt him and say, I didn't approve of him, or marry him and say you ordered her to. It's all my own doing. That's the horrible irony. He told me you were to be Anne's guardian, and like a fool, I began arguing with him about the folly of leaving a young woman under the control of an old man with obsolete ideas. My ideas obsolete? Totally. I had just finished an essay called Down with Government by the Greyhead, and I was full of arguments and illustrations. I said, the proper thing was to combine the experience of an old hand with the vitality of a young one. Hang me if he didn't take me at my word and alter his will. It's only dated a fortnight after, appointing me as joint guardian with you. I shall refuse to act. What's the use of that? I've been refusing all day. But Anne keeps on saying that, of course, she's only an orphan and can't expect people to trouble much about her now. That's the latest game. An orphan. It's like hearing an ironclad battleship talk about being at the mercy of the winds and the waves. This is not fair, Jack. She is an orphan and you ought to stand by her. Stand by her? What danger is she in? She has the law on her side, popular sentiment on her side, plenty of money and no conscience. She just wants to load up all her moral responsibilities on me and do as she likes at the expense of my character. I can't control her. 
And she can compromise me as much as she likes. I might as well be her husband. You can refuse to accept the guardianship. I shall certainly refuse to hold it jointly with you. And what does she say to that? Just that her father's wishes are sacred, and that she will always look to me as her guardian regardless. Refuse? You might as well refuse to accept the embraces of a boa constrictor. Jack! I do not believe that Whitefield was in his right senses when he made that will. You have admitted that he made it under your influence. You ought to be pretty well obliged to me for my influence. He leaves you 2,500 for your trouble. He leaves Tavia Dowry for his sister and 5,000 for himself. Oh, I can't take it. He was too good to us. You won't get it, my boy, if Ramsden upsets the will. He leaves me nothing but the charge of Anne's morals, on the ground that I already have more money than is good for me. That shows he had his wits about him, doesn't it? I admit that. Tavy, you must marry her after all and take her off my hands. And I had my heart set on saving you from her. Oh, Jack, you talk of saving me from my highest happiness. Yes, a lifetime of happiness. If it were only the first half hour, Tavy, I'd buy it for you with my last penny. But a lifetime of happiness? No man alive could bear it. Your stuff, sir. Talk sense, or else go and waste someone else's time. You hear him, Tavy. Not an idea in his head later than 1860. We can't leave Anne with no other guardian to turn to. I am proud of your contempt for my character and opinion, sir. Your own are set forth in that book, I believe. What? You've got my book? What did you think of it? Do you suppose I have read such a book, sir? Then why did you buy it? I did not buy it, sir. It has been sent to me by some foolish lady who admires your views. I was about to dispose of it when Octavius interrupted me. He throws the book into the wastepaper basket with such vehemence that Tanner recoils, under the impression that it is being thrown at his head. You have no more manners than I have myself. However, that saves ceremony between us. What do you intend to do about this will? Aren't we forgetting that Anne herself may have some wishes in the matter? I quite intend that Annie's wishes shall be consulted. But she is only a woman, and a young and inexperienced woman at that. Ramsden. I begin to pity you. I don't want to know how you feel towards me, Mr. Tanner. Anne will do just exactly what she likes, and she'll force us to advise her to do it, and put the blame on us if it turns out badly. So, as Tavy is longing to I see her... I'm not, Jack. You lie, Tavy, you are. So, let's have her down and ask her what she intends us to do. Off with you, Tavy, and fetch her, and don't be long, for the strained relations between myself and Ramsden will make the interval rather painful. Never mind him, Mr. Ramsden. He's not serious. Octavius goes quickly out, leaving Tanner and Ramsden entirely alone. Mr. Tanner, you are the most impudent person I have ever met. I know it, Ramsden. Yet even I cannot wholly conquer shame. We live in an atmosphere of shame. We are ashamed of everything that is real about us. Ashamed of ourselves, of our incomes, of our accents, of our opinions, just as we are ashamed of our naked skins. The more things a man is ashamed of, the more respectable he is. Why, you're ashamed to buy my book. Ashamed to read it. The only thing you're not ashamed of is to judge me for it without having read it. I am glad you think so well of yourself. All you mean by that is I ought to be ashamed of talking about my virtues. You don't mean that I haven't got them. You know perfectly well that I am as honest a citizen as yourself, as truthful personally, and much more truthful politically and morally. I deny that. 
I will not allow you or any man to treat me as if I were a mere member of the British public. I detest its prejudices. I scorn its narrowness. I demand the right to think for myself. You pose as an advanced man. Let me tell you that I was an advanced man before you were born. I knew it was a long time ago. I'm as advanced as I ever was. I grow more advanced every day. More advanced in years, Polonius. Polonius? So you are Hamlet, I suppose? No. I'm only the most impudent person you've ever met. Well, At this moment, Octavius returns with Miss Anne Whitefield and her mother. To Octavius, Anne is enchantingly beautiful. The reality of romance, the unveiling of his eyes, the freeing of his soul, the revelation of all the mysteries and the sanctification of all the dogmas. To her mother, she is nothing whatever of the kind. The truth is, Anne is a well-formed creature, perfectly ladylike, graceful and comely, with ensnaring eyes and hair. But all this is beside the point. Turn up her nose, give a cast to her eye, strike all the H's out of her speech, and Anne would still make men dream. Vitality is as common as humanity, but like humanity, it sometimes rises to genius. And Anne is one of the vital geniuses. Mrs. Whitefield, on the other hand, is a little woman whose faded flaxen hair looks like straw on an egg. She is perpetually muddled, has a croak of protest in her voice, and an odd air of continually elbowing away some larger person who is crushing her into a corner. I am sorry, Annie, but your poor dear father's will has raised a very serious question. You have read it, I believe. I have. I am surprised to find Mr. Tanner named as joint guardian with myself of you and Rhoda. I don't know I can consent to act under such conditions. Mr. Tanner has, I understand, some objections also. Mama. Now, Anne, I do beg you not to put it on me. I have no opinion on the subject, and if I had, it would probably not be attended to. Well, if I am to have a guardian, can I set aside anybody whom my dear father appointed for me? You approve of your father's choice, then? It is not for me to approve or disapprove. I accept it. My father loved me and knew best what was good for me. That does you credit, Anne, but... Anne Ramsden thinks that I'm not fit to be your guardian, and I quite agree with him. He thinks it's your duty, for Rhoda's sake, to ask him to act alone and to make me withdraw. Say the word and I will. Uh, yes, Annie, you must make a choice one way or the other. My father's wishes are sacred to me. If you two men won't carry them out, then I must say it is rather hard that you should put the responsibility on Anne. It seems to me that people are always putting things on other people in this world. I am sorry you take it that way. Do you refuse to accept me as your ward, Granny? No, I never said that. I greatly object to act with Mr. Tanner. That's all. But why? What's the matter with poor Jack? My views are too advanced for him. They oh. are not. I deny it. Of course not. What nonsense. Nobody is more advanced than Granny. I'm sure it is Jack himself who has made all the difficulty. Come, Jack. Be kind to me in my sorrow. You don't refuse to accept me as your ward, do you? No, I let myself in for it, so I suppose I must face it. Then my dear father's will is to be carried out. You don't know what a joy that is to me and to my mother. And I shall have my dear granny to help and advise me. And Jack the giant killer and Jack's inseparable friend, Ricky 
Ticky Tavy. Mr. Ramston, I wish you would speak to her about her habit of giving people nicknames. They can't be expected to like it. Oh, I wonder, can you be right? Have I been inconsiderate? Must I call you Mr. Robinson in the future? Oh, please call me Ricky Ticky Tavy. Mr. Robinson would hurt me cruelly. You know, I'm beginning to think that Granny is rather a piece of impertinence. But I never dreamt of it hurting you. Oh, my dear Annie, nonsense. I insist on Granny. I won't answer to any other name than Annie's Granny. You all spoil me. Except Jack. I think you ought to call me Mr. Tanner. No, you don't, Jack. You say things like that on purpose, but those who know you pay no attention to them. You see, Mama, they all really like to have pet names. Well, you might at least drop them until we are out of mourning. Oh, how could you remind me, Mother? And Anne leaves the room in seeming distress. Oh, of course, my fault. Followed by her ever-obedient mother. Ramsden, we're beaten. Smashed. Non-entitized. Like her mother. Stuff, sir. Good day. And finally, by Mr. Ramsden. Tavy, do you want to count for something in the world? I want to count for something as a poet. I want to write a great play. With Anne as the heroine? Yes, I confess it. Take care, Tavy. The play with Anne as the heroine is all right, but if you're not very careful, by heaven, she'll marry you. <sighs> no such luck, Jack. Why, man, your head is in the lioness's mouth. You are half swallowed already. Bite one, Ricky. Bite two, Ticky. Bite three, Tavy, and down you go. That's the devilish side of a woman's fascination. She makes you will your own destruction. But it's not destruction, it's fulfillment. Yes, of her purpose. And that purpose is neither her happiness nor yours, but nature's. Vitality in a woman is a blind fury of creation. A man is nothing to them but an instrument of that purpose. Don't be ungenerous, Jack. They take the tenderest care of us. Yes, as a soldier takes care of his rifle or a musician of his violin. But do they allow us any freedom or purpose of our own? Will they lend us to one another? Can the strongest man escape from them when once he is appropriated? They tremble when we are in danger and weep when we die. But the tears are not for us, but for a father wasted, a son's breeding thrown away. They accuse us of treating them as a mere means to our pleasure. But how can so feeble and transient a folly as a man's selfish pleasure enslave a woman as the whole purpose of nature embodied in a woman can enslave a man? But what matter if the slavery makes us happy? No matter at all if you have no purpose of your own and are, like most men, a mere breadwinner. But you, Tavy, are an artist. That is, you have a purpose, as absorbing and as unscrupulous as a woman's purpose. Not unscrupulous. Quite unscrupulous. The true artist will let his wife starve, his children go barefoot, his mother drudge for his living at 70 sooner than work at anything but his art. To women, he is half vivisector, half vampire. Ouch. He gets into intimate relations with them to study them. To surprise their inmost secrets, knowing that they have the power to rouse his deepest creative energies. To make him see visions and dream dreams. To inspire him, as he calls it. He persuades women that they may do this for their own purpose, whilst he really means them to do it for his. He steals the mother's milk and blackens it to make printer's ink to scoff at her and glorify ideal women with. 
He pretends to spare them the pangs of childbearing so that he may have for himself the tenderness and fostering that belong a right to her children. Since marriage began, the great artist has been known as a bad husband, but he is worse. He is a child robber, a blood sucker, a hypocrite, and a cheat. Perish the race and wither a thousand women if only the sacrifice of them enable him to act Hamlet better, to paint a finer picture, to write a deeper poem, a greater play, a profounder philosophy. For mark you, Tavy, the artist's work is to show us ourselves as we really are. Our minds are nothing but this knowledge of ourselves, and he who adds a jot to such knowledge creates new mind as surely as any woman creates new men. In the rage of that creation, he is as ruthless as the woman, as dangerous to her as she to him, and as horribly fascinating. Of all human struggles, there is none so treacherous and remorseless as the struggle between the artist man and the mother woman. Ramston returns, followed by Anne. They are both hurried and agitated. I hardly expected to find you still here, Mr. Tanner. Am I in the way? Good morning, fellow guardian. Stop, Jack. Granny, he must know sooner or later. Octavius, I have a very serious piece of news for you. It is of the most private and delicate nature. Of the most painful nature, too, I am sorry to say. Do you wish Mr. Tanner to be present whilst I explain? I have no secrets from Jack. Before you decide that finally, let me say that the news concerns your sister, and that it is terrible news. Violet? Is she dead? I am not sure that it is not even worse than that. Is she badly hurt? Has there been an accident? No, nothing of that sort. Anne, will you have the common humanity to tell us what the matter is? Violet has done something scandalous. We shall have to get her away. Oh, is that what you mean, Mr. Ramsden? Yes. Oh. I'm afraid there is no doubt that Violet did not really go to Eastbourne three weeks ago when we thought she was with the Perry Whitefields, and she called on a strange doctor yesterday with a wedding ring on her finger. Mrs. Perry Whitefield met her there by chance, and so the whole thing came out. Oh, but who is the scoundrel? She won't tell us. Oh, what a frightful thing. Dreadful. Appalling. Worse than death. Good heavens, man. Here is a woman we all suppose to be making bad watercolour sketches and gadding about to concerts and parties, wasting her life and her money. We suddenly learn that she has turned from these sillinesses to the fulfilment of her highest purpose and greatest function, to increase, multiply, and replenish the earth. And instead of rejoicing and raising the triumphal strain of unto us a child is born, here you are looking as ashamed as if the girl had committed the vilest of crimes. I will not have these abominations uttered in my house. And where is Violet now? Why? Are you going to her? Of course I'm going to her. She wants help. She wants money. She wants respect and congratulation. She wants every chance for her child. She does not seem likely to get it from you. She shall from me. Where is she? Don't be so headstrong, Jack. She's upstairs. What? <laughs> Under Ramston's sacred roof? Do your duty, Ramsden. Hunt her out into the street. I'll go for a cab. Oh, Granny, you mustn't do that. I'll take her away, Mr. Ramsden. She had no right to come to your house. But I am only too anxious to help her. How dare you, sir, impute such monstrous intentions to me? I protest against it. It's all right, then. He's not going to act up to his principles. It's agreed that we all stand by Violet. But who is the man? He may make reparation by marrying her, and he shall, or he shall answer for it to me. He shall, Octavius. There you speak like a man. Then you don't think I'm a scoundrel after all? No, 
not a scoundrel. He is a dreadful scoundrel. A damned scoundrel. So we are to marry your sister to a damned scoundrel by way of reforming her character. Oh, my soul, I think you're all mad. He's done his part, and Violet must do the rest. Stuff! Lunacy! There is a rascal in our midst, a libertine, a villain worse than a murderer, and we are not to learn who he is. In our ignorance, we are to shake him by the hand, to introduce him into our homes, to trust our daughters with him, to- There, Granny, don't talk so loud. It's most shocking, we must all admit that. But if Violet won't tell us, what can we do? Nothing. Anne, as your guardian, I order you to go to Violet at once and be particularly kind to her. I have seen her, Jack. But I'm sorry to say I'm afraid she's going to be rather obstinate about going abroad. I think Tavy ought to speak to her about it. How can I speak to her about such a thing? Don't break down, Ricky. Try to bear it for all our sakes. Life is not all plays and poems, Octavius. Come, face it like a man. Tavy. Don't be a selfish ass. Away with you and talk to Violet and bring her down here if she cares to come. Tell her we'll stand by her. No, sir. Oh, we understand. It's against your conscience, but still you'll do it. I assure you all on my word, I never meant to be selfish. It's so hard to know what to do when one wishes earnestly to do right. My dear Tavy, your pious English habit of regarding the world as a moral gymnasium built expressly to strengthen your character in occasionally leads you to think about your own confounded principles when you should be thinking about other people's necessities. The need of the present hour is a happy mother and a healthy baby. Bend your energies on that and you will see your way sure enough. Octavius, much perplexed, goes out. And morality, sir. What is to become of that? Granny, hadn't you better go up and tell them what we intend to do? I hardly like to leave you alone with Mr. Tanner. Will you not come with me? Your sister would not like to speak about it before me. I ought not to be present. You are right. I should have thought of that. You are a good girl, Annie. Ramsden goes out. Having disposed of him, Anne looks at Tanner. His back being turned, she gives a moment's attention to her personal appearance. Jack, are you glad that you are my guardian? The latest addition to your collection of scapegoats, eh? Oh, that stupid old joke. Do please drop it. Why do you say things that you know must pain me? You will make me so unhappy if you refuse to be friends with me. Oh, you need not go begging for my regard. I always attend to you somehow. I should miss you if I lost you. But isn't that only natural, Jack? We have known each other since we were children. Do you remember? Stop. I remember everything. Oh, I dare say we were often very silly, but... I won't have it, Anne. I am no more that schoolboy now than I am the doted of ninety I shall grow into if I live long enough. It is over. Let me forget it. Wasn't it a happy time? No doubt it was happy for you. You never compromised yourself. And yet the wickedest child that ever was slapped could hardly have had a better time. You were insatiably curious as to what a boy might be capable of, and diabolically clever at getting him to reveal his inmost secrets. What nonsense! All because you used to tell me long stories of the wicked things you had done. Silly boy's tricks. You lured me into a compact by which we would have no secrets from one another. We would tell one another everything, but you never told me anything. You didn't want to talk about me, Jack. You wanted to talk about yourself. Ah, true. Horribly true. But what a devil of a child you must have been to know that weakness and to play on it for the satisfaction of your own curiosity. 
I wanted to brag to make myself interesting. And I found myself doing all sorts of mischievous things simply to have something to tell you about. I fought with boys I didn't hate. I lied about things I might just would have told the truth about. I stole things I didn't want. And I kissed little girls I didn't care for. And I never told of you, Jack. If you had wanted to stop me, you would have. You wanted me to go on. Oh, that's not true. It's not true, Jack. I never wanted you to do those dull, disappointing, stupid things. I always hoped it would be something really heroic at last. Don't distress yourself. At least 19 twentieths of the exploits I confessed to you were pure lies. I soon noticed you didn't like the true stories. Of course I knew that some of the things couldn't have happened. But... You were going to remind me that some of the most disgraceful ones did. I knew the people they happened to and heard about them. Yes, but even the true stories were touched up for telling. However, perhaps it was as well for me that I romanced a bit, for on the one occasion when I told you the truth, you threatened to tell of me. Oh, never, never once. Yes, you did. Do you remember a dark-eyed girl named Rachel Rosetree? Oh. I got up a love affair with her, and we met one night in the garden and walked about very uncomfortably with our arms round one another and kissed at parting. If that love affair had gone on, it would have bored me to death. But it didn't go on, for the next thing that happened was that Rachel cut me because she found out that I told you. You went to her and held the guilty secret over her head. And a very good thing for her, too. It was my duty to stop her misconduct, and she is thankful to me for it now. Is she? She ought to be at all events. It was not your duty to stop my misconduct, I suppose. I did stop it by stopping her. Are you sure of that? You stopped my telling you about my adventures, but how do you know that you stopped the adventures? Do you mean to say that you went on in the same way with other girls? No. I'd had enough of that sort of romantic tomfoolery with Rachel. Then why did you break off our confidences and become quite strange to me? It happened just then that I got something that I wanted to keep all to myself instead of sharing it with you. I am sure I shouldn't have asked for any of it if you had grudged it. It wasn't a box of sweets. It was something you'd have never let me call my own. What? My soul. Oh, do be sensible, Jack. You know you're talking nonsense. The most solemn earnest. I began to have scruples, to feel obligations, to find that veracity and honor were no longer goody-goody expressions, but compelling principles. No, the change that came to me was the birth in me of moral passion. And I declare that according to my experience, moral passion is the only real passion. All passions ought to be moral, Jack. Ought? Do you think anything is strong enough to impose oughts on a passion, except a stronger passion still? Our moral sense controls passion, Jack. Don't be stupid. Our moral sense? And is that not a passion? Is the devil to have all the passions as well as all the good tunes? If it were not a passion, if it were not the mightiest of the passions, all the other passions would sweep it away like a leaf before a hurricane. It is the birth of that passion that turns a child into a man. My soul was born of that passion. I noticed you got more sense. You were a dreadfully destructive before that. Destructive stuff. I was only mischievous. Oh, Jack, you were very destructive. You ruined all the young fir trees by chopping off their leaders with a wooden sword. 
You broke all the cucumber frames with your catapult. You set fire to the common. I am ten times more destructive now than I was then. The moral passion has taken my destructiveness in hand and directed it to moral ends. I have become a reformer. And like all reformers, an iconoclast. I no longer burn gorse bushes and break cucumber frames. I shatter creeds and demolish idols. I'm afraid I'm too feminine to see any sense in destruction. Destruction can only destroy. Yes, that is why it is so useful. Construction cumbers the ground with institutions. Destruction clears it and gives us breathing space and liberty. It's no use, Jack. No woman will agree with you there. That's because you confuse construction and destruction with creation and murder. They're quite different. I adore creation and abhor murder. Yes, I adore it. In tree and flower, in in bird and beast, even in you. It was the creative instinct that led you to attach me to you by bonds that have left their mark on me to this day. Yes, Anne. The old childish compact between us was an unconscious love compact. Jack! Oh, no, don't be alarmed. I am not alarmed. Then you ought to be. Where are your principles? Jack, are you serious or are you not? Do you mean about the moral passion? No, the other one. Oh, you are so silly. One never knows how to take you. You must take me quite seriously. I am your guardian. The love compact is over then, is it? I suppose you grew tired of me. No, but the moral passion made our childish relations impossible. A jealous sense of my new individuality arose in me. You hated to be treated as a boy any longer. Poor Jack. But I had become a new person. The only man who behaved sensibly was my tailor. He took my measure anew every time he saw me, whilst all the rest went on with their old measurements and expected them to fit me. You, above all. You fought harder than anybody against my emancipation. Oh, how wrong you are. I would have done anything for you. Except let me get loose from you. I am sorry you thought my influence a bad one. I didn't say it was a bad one, but bad or good, I didn't choose to be cut to your measure, and I won't be cut to it. Nobody wants you to, Jack. I assure you, really, on my word, I don't mind your queer opinions one little bit. Why do you persist in thinking me so narrow-minded? That's the danger of it. I know you don't mind because you found out that it doesn't matter. The boba constrictor doesn't mind the opinions of the stag one little bit when once she's got her coils round it. Oh, now I know why you warned Tavy that I'm a boa constrictor, Granny told me. And with that, she throws her boa around his neck. Doesn't it feel nice and soft, Jack? You scandalous woman. Will you throw away even your hypocrisy? I'm never hypocritical with you. Are you angry? Perhaps I shouldn't have done that. Pooh, prudery. Why should you not, if it amuses you? Well, because... Because I suppose what you really meant by boa constrictor was this. And with that, she puts her arms round his neck and pulls him close. Magnificent audacity! Now, just to think that if I mentioned this episode, not a soul would believe me. Whilst, if you accused me of it, nobody would believe my denial. You are incorrigible. But you should not jest about our affection for one another. Nobody could possibly misunderstand it. You do not misunderstand it, I hope. 
I do not. Poor Ricky Ticky Tavy. Surely you are not so absurd as to be jealous of Tavy. Jealous? Why should I be? But I don't wonder at your grip of him. I feel the coils tightening round my very self, though you are only playing with me. Do you think I have designs on Tavy? I know you have. Take care, Jack. You may make Tavy very unhappy if you mislead him about me. Never fear, he will not escape you. I wonder, are you really a clever man? Why the sudden misgiving on the subject? You seem to understand all the things I don't understand. But you are a perfect baby in the things I do understand. I understand how Tavy feels for you, Anne. You may depend on that. And you think you understand how I feel for Tavy, do you? I know only too well what is going to happen to poor Tavy. You have no right to say such things, Jack. They are not true and not delicate. If you and Tavy choose to be stupid about me, that is not my fault. All the same, I wish Framston would come back. I never feel safe with you. There is a devilish charm. Oh, no, not a charm, a, a subtle interest. <laughs> Just so. You know it, oh. and you triumph in it, openly and shamelessly. Oh, what a shocking flirt you are, Jack. A flirt? I? Yes, a flirt. You were always abusing and defending people, but you never really mean to let go your hold of them. But just then, Ramsden and Octavius come back with Miss Ramsden, a hard-headed old maiden lady in a plain brown silk gown, with enough rings, chains, and brooches to show that her plainness of dress is a matter of principle, not of poverty. I wash my hands of the whole affair. I know you wish me to take Violet away, Miss Ramsden. I will. No, uh, no. What is the use of saying no, Roebuck? Octavius knows that I would not turn any truly contrite and repentant woman from your doors. But when a woman is not only wicked, but intends to go on being wicked, she and I part company. Oh, Miss Ramsden, what do you mean? What has Violet said? Violet is very obstinate. She won't leave London. I don't understand her. I do. It's as plain as the nose on your face, Roebuck, that she won't go because she doesn't want to be separated from this man, whoever he is. Octavius, did you speak to her? She won't tell us anything. She won't make any arrangements until she has consulted somebody. It can't be anybody but that scoundrel who has betrayed her. Well, let her consult him. Where is the difficulty? The difficulty, Mr. Jack, is that when we offered to help her, we didn't offer to become her accomplice in her wickedness. She either pledges her word never to see that man again, or else she finds some new friends, and the sooner the better. The parlourmaid appears at the door. The cab is at the door, ma'am. What cab? For Miss Robinson. Oh, good. She has sent for a cab. I am glad she understands the position she has placed herself in. I don't like her going away in this fashion, Susan. We have better not do anything harsh. No, thank you again and again, but Miss Ramsden is quite right. Violet cannot expect to stay. Hadn't you better go with her, Tavy? She won't have me. Of course she won't. She's going straight to that man. As a natural result of a virtuous reception here. There, Susan, you hear, and there's some truth in it. I wish you could reconcile it with your principles to be a little patient with this poor girl. She's very young. And there's a time for everything. Oh, she'll get all the sympathy she wants from the men. I'm surprised at you, Roebuck. 
So am I, Ramsden, most favourably. Violet appears at the door. She is as impenitent and self-assured a young lady as one would desire to see. Her small head and tiny resolute mouth, her haughty crispness of speech and trimness of carriage, her ruthless elegance marks a personality which is as formidable as it is exquisitely pretty. I have only looked in to tell Miss Ramsden that she will find her birthday present to me, the filigree bracelet, in the housekeeper's room. Do come in, Violet, and talk to us sensibly. Thank you. I've had quite enough of the family conversation this morning. So has your mother, Anne. She's gone home crying. But at all events, I have found out what some of my pretended friends are worth. Goodbye. No, no, one moment. I have something to say, which I beg you to hear. I am altogether on your side in this matter. I congratulate you with the sincerest respect on having the courage to do what you have done. You are entirely in the right, and the family is entirely in the wrong. Jack! Who told you? Why, Ramson and Tavy, of course. Why should they not? But they don't know. Don't know what? Well, they don't know that I am in the right, I mean. Oh, they know it in their hearts, I think. But I know that you are right to follow your instinct. That vitality and bravery are the greatest qualities a woman can have. And motherhood... A solemn initiation into womanhood. And the fact of your not being legally married matters not one scrap. Oh, you think me a wicked woman like the rest. You think that I've not only been vile, but that I share your abominable opinions. Oh, Miss Ramsden, I have borne your hard words because I knew you would be sorry for them when you found out the truth. But I won't be complimented by Jack on being one of the wretches of whom he approves. I have kept my marriage a secret for my husband's sake. But now I claim my right as a married woman not to be insulted. You are married? Yes, and I think you might have guessed it. What business had you all to take it for granted that I had no right to wear my wedding ring? Not one of you even asked me. I cannot forget that. I am utterly crushed. I meant well. I apologize, abjectly apologize. I hope you will be more careful in the future about the things you say. Of course, one does not take them seriously, but they are very disagreeable nonetheless. I have no defence. We have all disgraced ourselves in your eyes, I'm afraid, except Anne. She befriended you. For Anne's sake, forgive us. Yes, Anne has been very kind. But then Anne knew. Oh. And who is the gentleman who does not acknowledge his wife? I have my reasons for keeping my marriage a secret for the present. All I can say is we are extremely sorry, Violet. I'm shocked to think of how we have treated you. I beg your pardon, Violet. I I can say no more. Of course, what you say puts a very different complexion on the matter. All the same, I owe it to myself. You owe me an apology, Miss Ramsden. That is what you owe both to yourself and to me. You brought it on yourself. It is for you to apologise for having deceived us. (laughs) I see. Well... I feel that you have all placed yourself in a very painful position, and the most truly considerate thing for me to do is to go at once. Good morning. And she goes, leaving them staring after her. Well, I must say... I don't think she is quite fair to us. You must cower before the wedding ring like the rest of us, Ramsden. The cup of our ignominy is full. Act 2. On the carriage drive in the park of a country house near Richmond, a motor car has broken down. Jack Tanner, in a leather driving jacket, cap and goggles, paces nearby, while a pair of supine legs in blue serge trousers protrude from beneath the machine. 
The owner of the legs finally speaks. Ah! Aha! I've got it! All right now. All right now. The legs now emerge from under the automobile. They belong to Henry Straker, Tanner's automobilist or chauffeur. He is a young man, clean-shaven, dark-eyed, with rather irregular, skeptically-turned eyebrows. Like a man who knows the world well from its seamy side. I suppose that you know we've come from Hyde Park Corner to Richmond in 21 minutes. I'd have done it under 15 if I'd a clear road all the way. Why do you do it? Is it for love of sport or for the fun of terrifying your unfortunate employer? What are you afraid of? The police! And breaking my neck. Well, if you like easy going, you could take a bus. It's cheaper. You pay me to save your time and give you the value of your thousand-pound car. There's a young American gentleman, a Mr. Malone, who's driving Mr. Robinson down in his new American steam car. American steam car? What? Racing us down from London? Perhaps they're here already. If I'd have known it, why didn't you tell me, Mr. Tanner? Because I've been told that this car is capable of 84 miles an hour, and I already know what you are capable of when there's a rival car on the road. No, Henry, there are things it is not good for you to know, and this was one of them. However, cheer up. We are going to have a day after your own heart. The American is to take Mr. Robinson and his sister and Miss Whitefield. We are to take Miss Rhoda. That's Miss Whitefield's sister, isn't it? Yes. And Miss Whitefield herself is going in the other car? Not with you. Why the devil should she come with me? Mr. Robinson will be in the other car. I see. I'll see here, Straker. But Mr. Tanner is interrupted by the arrival of the party just mentioned. Ah, here's Mr. Robinson now. Well, Tavy, is the steam car a success? I think so. We came from Hyde Park Corner here in 17 minutes. Ah! How long were you? Oh, about three quarters of an hour or so. Now, now, we could have done it easy under 15. Let me introduce you. Mr. Octavius Robinson, Mr. Henry Straker. Pleased to meet you, sir. Mr. Tanner is getting at you with his Henry Straker, you know. You call it Henry, but I don't mind, bless you. This man takes more trouble to drop his H's than ever his father did to pick them up. I've never met anybody more swollen with the pride of class than Henry is. Uh, what was that school of yours, Straker? Chelsea Polytechnic. You despise Oxford, don't you? Oh, a very nice sort of place, Oxford, I should think, for people that like that sort of thing. They teach you to be a gentleman there. In the Polytechnic, they teach you to be an engineer or such like, see? Sarcasm, Tavy, sarcasm. He positively likes the car to break down because it brings out my gentlemanly helplessness and his workmanlike skill and resource. Never you mind him, Mr. Robinson. He likes to talk. We know him, don't we? But there's great truth at the bottom of what he says. I believe most intensely in the dignity of labour. That's because you never done any, Mr. Robinson. My business is to do away with labour. You get more out of me and a machine than you will out of 20 labourers and not so much to drink either. For heaven's sake, Tavy, don't start him on political economy. He knows all about it, and we don't. You're only a poetic socialist, Tavy. He's a scientific one. Yes, well, this conversation is very improving, but I've got to look after the car, and you two want to talk about your ladies, oh no. And with that, Mr Straker saunters off toward the house. I'm glad he's gone. I want to speak with you about Anne. Well, have you proposed to her? I was brute enough to do so last night. Brute enough? What do you mean? Jack, we men are all coarse. 
We never understand how exquisite a woman's sensibilities are. How could I have done such a thing? Done what, you maudlin idiot? Yes, I am an idiot, Jack. If you had heard her voice, if you had seen her tears, if she had reproached me, I could have borne it better. Tears, that's dangerous. What did she say? She asked me how she could think of anything now but her dear father. Oh, bear it like a man, Tavy, even if you feel it like an ass. It's the old game. She's not tired of playing with you yet. Oh, don't be a fool, Jack. Do you suppose this eternal, shallow cynicism of yours has any real bearing on an exquisite nature like uh, hers? Did she say anything else? Her sense of duty is so devout, so perfect, so... Yes, I know. Go on. You and Ramsden are her guardians. She said I ought to have spoken to you both first. Of course she is right, but... Somehow it seems rather absurd that I am to come to you and formally ask to be received as a suitor for your ward's hand. I'm glad that love has not totally extinguished your sense of humour, Davy. But that answer won't satisfy her. My official answer is obviously, bless you, my children. May you be happy. I wish you would stop playing the fool. If it is not serious to you, it is to me. You know very well that she is as free to choose as you. <sighs> she does not think so. Oh, doesn't she? Just... However, say what you want me to do. I want you to tell her that you can trust her to me, if you feel you can. I have no doubt that I can trust her to you. What worries me is the idea of trusting you to her. Have you read Major Link's book about the bee? I am not discussing literature at present. I am not discussing literature. The book is natural history. You think that you are Anne Souter. That you are the pursuer and she the pursued. That it is your part to woo, to persuade, to prevail. Fool! It is you who are the pursued, the marked-down quarry, the destined prey. Oh, I wish I could believe that, vilely as you put it. Why, man, it is a woman's business to get married as soon as possible, and a man's to keep unmarried as long as he can. You have your poems and your tragedies to work at. Anne has nothing. But I cannot write without inspiration, and nobody can give me that except Anne. Well, hadn't you better get it at a safe distance? Petrarch didn't see half as much as Laura, nor Dante of Beatrice as you see of Anne now. Yet they wrote first-rate poetry, at least so I'm told. They never exposed their idolatry to the test of domestic familiarity. Marry Anne, and at the end of a week, you'll find no more inspiration than in a plate of muffins. You think I shall tire of her? Not at all. You don't get tired of muffins, but you don't find inspiration in them either. Oh, you don't understand, Jack. You have never been in love. I? I have never been out of it. Why, I am in love even with Anne. But I am neither the slave of love nor its dupe. By heaven, Tavy, if women could do without our work, and we ate their children's bread instead of making it, they would kill us, as the spider kills her mate or as the bee kills the drone. And they would be right if we were good for nothing but love. Ha! Oh, if we were only good enough for love. There is nothing like love. There is nothing else but love. Without it, the world would be a dream of sordid horror. And this, this is the man who asks me to give him the hand of my ward. Straker saunters back with a haypenny newspaper. Well, Henry, what's the latest? Henry is mad for motoring records. Paris to Biskra at 40 mile an hour, average, not counting the Mediterranean. How many killed? 
Two silly sheep, but what does it matter? There will be a clamour again at presently, and then the French government will stop it, and our chance will be gone, see? That's what makes me fairly mad. Mr Tanner won't do a good run while he can. All right, Henry, all right. We'll go out for half an hour presently. Half an hour? Oh, that reminds me, I have a note for you from Rhoda. I rather think Rhoda is headed for a row with Anne. As a rule, there is only one person an English girl hates more than she hates her mother, and that's her eldest sister. <laughs> but Rhoda positively prefers her mother to Anne. She... Oh, I say! What's the matter? Rhoda was to have come with me for a ride in the motor car. She says Anne has forbidden her to go out with me. She says I'm not a fit person for a young girl to be with. What do you think of your paragon now? Well... You must admit that your views are hardly suitable for the formation of a young girl's mind and character. I admit nothing of the sort. I admit that the formation of a young lady's mind and character usually consists in telling her lies, but I object to the particular lie that I am in the habit of abusing the confidence of girls. Anne doesn't say that, Jack. What else does she mean? Miss Whitefield, gentlemen. And Straker wanders off yet again to give his employer some... Privacy. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Tavy. Good morning, Jack. I've come to tell you that poor Rhoda has got one of her headaches and cannot go out with you today in the car. What do you say now, Tavy? Surely you cannot misunderstand, Jack. Anne is showing you the kindest consideration, even at the cost of deceiving you. What do you mean? Sadly, you have arrived about two minutes after Rhoda's letter to me. Rhoda has written to you. With full particulars. Well, never mind him, Anne. You were right. Quite right. Anne was only doing her duty, Jack, and you know it. Doing it in the kindest way, too. How kind you are, Tavy. How helpful. How well you understand. I tighten the coils. You love her, Tavy, don't you? She knows I do. Gosh, for shame, Tavy. Oh, I give you leave. I am your guardian, and I commit you to Tavy's care for the next hour. No, Jack. I must speak to you about Rhoda. Ricky, will you go back into the house and entertain your American friend? He's rather on Mama's hand so early in the morning. She wants to finish her housekeeping. I fly, dearest Anne. Ricky Ticky Tavy. And with an elegant blush, he dashes off, leaving Tanner and Anne entirely alone. Now look here, Anne. If Tavy were not in love with you past all salvation, he'd have found out what an incorrigible liar you are. You misunderstand, Jack. I didn't dare tell Tavy the truth. No, your daring is generally in the opposite direction. What the devil do you mean by telling Rhoda that I am too vicious to associate with her? I know you are incapable of behaving badly. Then why did you lie to her? I had to. Had to? Mother made me. Ha! I might have known it. The mother. Always the mother. It was that dreadful book of yours. You know how timid Mother is. Even you, who are a man, cannot say what you think without being misunderstood and vilified. Yes, I admit it. I have had to vilify you. Do you want to have poor Rhoda misunderstood and vilified in the same way? In short, the way to avoid misunderstanding is for everybody to lie and slander as hard as they can. That is what obeying your mother comes to. I love my mother, Jack. Is that any reason why you were not to call your soul your own? 
Oh, I protest against this vile objection of youth to age. To see women in society today is to see a procession of wretched girls, each in the claws of a cynical, cunning, avaricious, foul-minded old woman whom she calls mother, whose duty is to corrupt her mind and sell her to the highest bidder. Why do these unhappy slaves marry anybody sooner than not marry at all? Because marriage is their only means of escape from these decrepit fiends, their mothers, who hide their jealous hatred of their daughter, who will supplant them, under the mask of maternal duty and affection. The first duty of manhood and womanhood should be a declaration of independence, of revolution, of emancipation. The man who pleads his father's authority is no man. The woman who pleads her mother's authority is unfit to bear citizens to a free people. You are so utterly unreasonable and impracticable. What can I do? Do! Break your chains. Go your way according to your own conscience and not according to your mother's. Learn to enjoy a fast ride in a motor car instead of seeing nothing in it but an excuse for a detestable intrigue. Come with me to Marseille and across to Algiers and to Biscar at 60 miles an hour. That will be a declaration of independence with a vengeance. You can write a book about it afterwards. That will finish your mother and make a woman of you. I don't think there would be any harm in that. You are my guardian. Nobody could say a word against our travelling together. Thank you a thousand times. I'll come. You'll come? Of course. But, no, look here, Anne. If there's no harm in it, then there's no point in doing it. How absurd you are. You don't want to compromise me, do you? Yes. That's the whole sense of my proposal. Nonsense. You would never do anything to hurt me. Well, if you don't want to be compromised, don't come. I will come, Jack, since you wish it. You are my guardian, and I think we ought to see more of one another. It's very kind of you, Jack, offering me this lovely holiday, especially after what I said about Rhoda. You really are very good, much better than you think. When do we start? But... The conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Mrs. Whitefield, Mr. Ramsden, and Octavius, accompanied by an American gentleman, Mr. Hector Malone. Hector is American, but he is not at all ashamed of his nationality. This makes English people think well of him, as of a young fellow manly enough to confess to an obvious disadvantage without any attempt to conceal it. In appearance, he is a neatly built young man of 24, with a short, smartly trimmed black beard, clear eyes, and an ingratiating vivacity of expression. Oh, Mama, what do you think? Jack is going to take me to Nice in his motor car. Isn't it lovely? I am the happiest person in London. Mrs. Whitefield objects. I am sure she objects, doesn't she, Ramsden? I should think it very likely indeed. You don't object, do you, Mother? Oh, I object. Why should I? I think it will do you good, Anne. By the way, Jack... I meant to ask you to take Rhoda out for a drive occasionally. She is too much in the house. Abyss beneath abyss of perfidy! Oh, I forgot! You have not yet met Mr. Malone. Mr. Tanner, my guardian, Mr. Hector Malone. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Tanner. I should like to suggest an extension of the travelling party to Nice, if I may. Oh, we're all coming. That's understood, isn't it? I also am the modest possessor of a motor car. If Miss Robinson will allow me the privilege of taking her, my car is at her service. Violet? Oh, that won't do. Come, Mother. We must leave them all to talk over the arrangements. I must see to my travelling kit. Mrs. Whitefield looks bewildered. 
but Anne draws her discreetly away, and they disappear round the corner towards the house, leaving the gentlemen alone. I think I can depend on Miss Robinson's consent. I'm afraid we must leave Violet behind. There are circumstances which make it impossible for her to come on such an expedition. To American, eh? Must the young lady have a chaperone? Uh, oh, it's not that, Malone. At least not altogether. Indeed. May I ask, what other objection applies? Oh, tell him, tell him. We shall never be able to keep the secret unless everybody knows it. Mr. Malone, if you go to Nice with Violet, you go with another man's wife. She is married. You don't say... We do, in confidence. She desires that it shall not be mentioned for the present. I shall respect the lady's wishes. Would it be indiscreet to ask who her husband is, in case I should have an opportunity of consulting him about this trip? We don't know who he is. In that case, I have no more to say. You must think this very strange. A little singular. The young lady was married secretly, and her husband has forbidden her, it seems, to declare his name. Uh It is only right to tell you, since you are interested in Miss uh, Violet. I hope this is not a disappointment to you. Well, it is a blow. I can hardly understand how a man can leave a wife in such a position. It's not manly. It's not considerate. We feel that, as you may imagine, pretty deeply. It is some young fool who has not enough experience to know what mystifications of this kind lead to. I hope so. A man need be very young, and pretty foolish, too, to be excused for such conduct. Surely marriage should ennoble a man. Ha! Am I to gather that you don't agree with me, Mr. Tanner? Get married and try. (laughs) You might find it delightful for a while. You certainly won't find it ennobling. Well, we think in America that a woman's moral number is higher than a man's, and that the pure nature of a woman makes him better than he was. So it does. No wonder American women prefer to live in Europe. (laughs) It's more comfortable than standing all their lives on an altar to be worshipped. Anyhow, Violet's husband has not been ennobled, so... What's to be done? I can't dismiss that man's conduct as lightly as you do, Mr. Tanner. I'm very sorry, Malone. Very sorry. You're a good fellow, Robinson. Thank you. Talk about something else. Violet coming from the house. Uh, I should esteem it a very great favor, gentlemen, if you would take the opportunity to let me have a few words with the lady alone. I shall have to cry off this trip, and it's rather a delicate... Say uh, no more. Uh, Come, Tanner. Come, Tavy. The three of them stroll into the park leaving Hector alone. Violet comes down the avenue to join him. Are they looking? No. They suddenly kiss, quite emphatically. Oh. Have you been telling lies for my sake? Lying hardly describes it. I overdo it. I get carried away in an ecstasy of mendacity. Violet, I wish you'd let me own up. No, no, Hector, you promised. But I feel mean, lying to those men and denying my wife just dastardly. I wish your father were not so unreasonable. He's not unreasonable. He has a prejudice against the English middle class. Oh, it's too ridiculous. I tell you, Violet, I don't like deceiving him. I feel as if I was stealing his money. Why won't you let me own up? We can't afford it. You can be as romantic as you please about love, Hector, but you mustn't be romantic about money. Dad's bound to find us out someday. Don't. Let's go over this every time we meet, dear. You promise? All right, all right. It is I and not you who suffer by this concealment. And as to facing a struggle and poverty and all that sort of thing, I simply will not do it. It's too silly. You shall not. I'll sort of borrow the money from my dad until I get on my own feet. Then I can own up and pay up at the same time. What do you mean to work? 
Do you want to spoil our marriage? Well, I don't mean to let marriage spoil my character. Your friend Mr. Tanner has got Ugh. the laugh on me a bit already about that. Oh, that beast. I hate Jack Tanner. He's all right. He only needs the love of a good woman to ennoble him. Hmm. Besides, he's proposed a motoring trip to Nice, and I'm going to take you. Oh, how jolly. Yes, but how are we going to manage? Huh. You see, they've warned me off going with you, so to speak. Yep. They've told me in confidence that you're married. <clears throat> That's just the most overwhelming confidence I've ever been honored with. Tanner now returns with Straker, who goes to the car. Your car's a great success, Mr. Malone. Your engineer is showing it off to Mr. Ramsden. Ah, let's come by. I beg your pardon, Mr. Malone. I did not quite catch you. I ask to be allowed the pleasure of showing you my little American steam car, Miss Robinson. I shall be very pleased. And they go off together, down the avenue. About this trip, Straker. Yeah? Miss Whitefield is supposed to be coming with me. So I gather. Mr. Robinson is to be one of the party. Yeah? Well, if you can manage so as to be a good deal occupied with me and leave Mr. Robinson a good deal occupied with Miss Whitefield, he will be deeply grateful to you. And she is just as willing to be left to Mr. Robinson as Mr. Robinson is to be left with her. Stop that aggravating noise. What do you mean by it? Henry. I object to your whistling whenever Miss Whitefield's name is mentioned. You did it this morning, too. It's not a bit of use. Mr. Robinson may as well give it up first as last. Why? You know why. Of course, it's not my business, but you needn't kid me about it. I'm not kidding. I don't know why. Oh, very well. All right. It ain't my business. Come, there's nobody listening. As man to man, Henry, why do you think that my friend has no chance with Miss Whitefield? Because she's after someone else. Bosh, who else? You! Me? Mean to tell me you didn't know? Oh, come, Mr. Tanner. Are you playing the fool or do you mean it? I'm not playing no fool. Why, it's as plain as a nose in your face. If you ain't spotted that, you don't know much about these sort of things. Excuse me, you know, Mr. Tanner, but you asked me as man to man and I told you as man to man. Then I... I am the bee! The spider, the marked-down victim, the destined prey. I don't know about the bee and the spider, but the marked-down victim, that's what you are, no mistake. And a jolly good job for you, too, I should say. Henry Straker, the moment of your life has arrived. What do you mean? That record of Biskra. Yeah? Break it. Do you mean it? I do. When? Now. Is that machine ready to start? But you can't just drive off. off. First to the bank for money, then to my rooms for my kid, then to your rooms for your kid, then break the record from London to Dover or Folkestone, then across the channel and away like mad. Gone, you're kidding. Stay behind, then. If you won't come, I'll do it alone. Eh, mister, off of my, steady on. Yes, that's right. We're skipping Act 3. Act 3 chronicles the automobile journey Tanner and Straker undertake. They're meeting with brigands in the hills of Spain, and a dream Tanner has about his ancestor, Don Juan, in hell. We wholeheartedly recommend that you read it. It is excellent, provocative, erudite, but shockingly long. It is, in fact, a full evening of theatre in and of itself. 
It is also entirely unnecessary to the narrative arc of the play we are doing. Therefore, we resume in Act 4, in the elegant and well-appointed garden of a villa in Granada, Spain, where Straker and Tanner arrived, followed soon after by the rest of the travelling party, who tracked them easily to their current location. It is a delightfully fine afternoon. Henry Straker leads an older gentleman into the deserted garden. This elderly gentleman defies the Spanish sun in a black frock coat, tall silk hat, trousers in which narrow stripes of dark grey and lilac blend into a highly respectable colour, and a black necktie tied into a bow over spotless linen. He is a bullet-cheeked man with a red complexion, stubbly hair, smallish eyes, a hard mouth that folds down at the corners, and a dogged chin. He has the self-confidence of one who has made money and something of the truculence of one who has made it in a brutalizing struggle, his civility having under it a perceptible menace that he has other methods in reserve if necessary. At the first word that falls from him, it is clear that he is an Irishman. Or go tell the young lady. She said you'd prefer to stay here. The young lady? That's Miss Violet, eh? Well, you know, don't you? <laughs> Do I? Well, do you or don't you? Uh, what business is that of yours? We'll tell you what business it is of mine. Miss Robinson oh, is not... Oh, her name is Robinson, is it? Thank you. Well, you don't know even a name. <laughs> yes, I do, now that you've told me. <laughs> Look here. What do you mean by getting into my car and letting me bring you here if you're not the person I took the note to? Who else did you take it to, pray? I took it to Mr. Rector Malone at Miss Robinson's request. See, Miss Robinson is not my principal. I took it to oblige her. I know Mr. Malone, and he ain't you, not by long chalk. At the hotel, they told me that your name is Hector Malone. Hector Malone. Hector, in your own country. That's what comes to living in provincial places like Ireland and America. Over here, you're Hector. And if you haven't noticed it before, you soon will. The growing strain of the conversation is here relieved by Violet who has sallied from the villa and through the garden to the steps, which she now descends, coming very opportunely between Mr Malone and Straker. Did you take my message? Yes, miss. I took her to the hotel and sent it up, expecting to see young Mr Malone. Then I walks this gent and says it's all right and he'll come with me. So as the hotel people said he was Mr Hector Malone, I fetched him, and now he goes back on what he said. But if he isn't the gentleman you meant, say the word. It's easy enough to fetch him back again. I should esteem it a great favour if I might have a short conversation with you, madam. I am Hector's father, as this bright Britisher would have guessed in the course of another hour or so. I am so All sorry, right, Mr Malone, if that man has been rude to you. But what can we do? He is our chauffeur. You're what? The driver of our automobile. He can drive a motor car at 70 miles an hour and mend it when it breaks down. We are dependent on our motor cars, and our motor cars are dependent on him, so of course we are dependent on him. I've noticed, madam, that every thousand dollars an Englishman gets seems to add one to the number of people he's dependent on. <laughs> However, you needn't apologise for your man. I made him talk on purpose. By doing so, I learnt that you're staying here in Granada with a party of English, including my son, Hector. Yes. We intended to go to Nice, but we had to follow a rather eccentric member of our party who started first and came here. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Miss Robinson, I believe? Yes. Your note to Hector runs as follows. Oh! Dearest, they have all gone to the Alhambra for the afternoon. I have shammed headache and have the garden all to myself. Jump into Jack's motor. Straker will rattle you here in a jiffy. Quick, quick, quick. 
your loving Violet. <laughs> no, I don't know on what terms young people associate in English society, but in America that note would imply a very considerable degree of affectionate intimacy between the parties. Yes, I know your son very well, Mr Malone. Have you any objection? No, no objection exactly, provided it is understood that my son is altogether dependent on me and that I have to be consulted in any important step he may propose to take. I am sure you will not be unreasonable with him, Mr Malone. I hope not, Miss Robinson. But at your age you might think many things unreasonable that don't seem so to me. Ah, well, I suppose there's no use at our playing at cross-purposes, Mr Malone. Hector wants to marry me. I inferred from your note that he might. Well, Miss Robinson, he is his own master. But if he marries you, he shall not have a rap from that me. That is not very complimentary to me, Mr Malone. I say nothing against you, Miss Robinson. I dare say you are an amiable and excellent young lady, but I have other views for Hector. Hector may not have other views for himself, Mr Malone. Possibly not. Then he does without me, that's all. I dare say you are prepared for that. When a young lady writes to a young man to come to her quick, 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 money seems nothing and love seems everything. I beg your pardon, Mr Malone. I do not think anything so foolish. Hector must have money. <laughs> oh, very well. <clears throat> oh, very well. Oh, no doubt he can work for it. What is the use of having money if you have to work for it? Mr Malone, you must enable your son to keep up his position. It is his right. I should not advise you to marry him on the strength of that right, Miss Robinson. What objection have you to me, pray? I have made Hector a fair offer. Let him pick out the most historic house, castle or abbey that England contains. The day that he tells me he wants it for a wife worthy of its traditions, I buy it for him and give him the means of keeping it up. What do you mean by a wife worthy of its traditions? Cannot any well-bred woman keep such a house for him? No, she must be born to it. Hector was not born to it, was he? His grandmother was a barefooted Irish girl that nursed me by a turf fire. <laughs> Let him marry another such and I will not stint her marriage portion. Let him raise himself socially with my money or raise somebody else. So long as there is a social profit somewhere, I'll regard my expenditure as justified. But there must be a profit for someone. A marriage with you would leave things just where they are. Many of my relations would object very much to my marrying the grandson of a common woman, Mr Malone. That may be prejudice, but so is your desire to have him marry a title prejudice. You seem like a pretty straightforward, downright sort of a young woman. I do not see why I should be made miserably poor because I cannot make profits for you. Why do you want to make Hector unhappy? He'll get over it. Men thrive better on disappointments in love than on disappointments in money. Oh, I dare say you think that's sordid, but I know what I'm talking about. My father died of starvation in Ireland in the Black 47. Maybe you've heard of it. The famine? No, the starvation. When a country is full of food and exporting it, there can be no famine. My father was starved dead, and I was starved out to America in me mother's arms. English rule drove me and mine out of Ireland. Well, you can keep Ireland. I and my like are coming back to buy England. And we'll buy the best of it. I want no middle-class properties and no middle-class women for Hector. 
That's straightforward, isn't it? Like yourself. Really, Mr Malone, I am astonished to hear a man of your age and good sense talking in that romantic way. Do you suppose English noblemen will sell their places to you for the asking? I have the refusal of two of the oldest family mansions in England. One historic owner can't afford to keep all the rooms dusted. The other can't afford the death duties. What do you say now? Of course, it is very scandalous, but surely you know the government will sooner or later put a stop to all these socialist attacks on property. Do you think they'll be able to get that done before I buy the house? Or rather, the Abbey. They're both abbeys. Let us talk sense, Mr Malone. You must feel that we've not been talking sense so far. I can't say I do. I mean all I say. Well, then you don't know Hector as I do. He is romantic and faddy. He gets that from you, I fancy. And he wants a certain sort of wife to take care of him. Not a faddy sort of person, you know? Somebody like you, perhaps. Well, yes. But you cannot very well ask me to undertake it with absolutely no means of keeping up his position. Stop a bit, stop a bit. Where are we getting to? I'm not aware that I'm asking you to undertake anything. Of course, Mr Malone. You can make it very difficult for me to speak to you if you choose to misunderstand me. I don't wish to take any unfair advantage, but we seem to have got off the straight track somehow. Straker, making haste, opens the little gate and admits. Hector, snorting with indignation, Hector makes straight for his father. Violet, greatly dismayed, springs up and intercepts him. Now please, Hector, say nothing. Go away until I've finished speaking with your father. No, Violet, I mean to have this thing out. Dad, you've not played this hand straight. What do you mean? You've opened a letter addressed to me. You've impersonated me and stolen a march on this lady. That's dishonorable. Now you take care of what you're saying, Hector. Take care, I tell you. I am taking care. I'm taking care of my honor and my position in English society. Your possession has been got by my money. Do you know that? Well, you just spoiled it all by opening that letter. A letter from an English lady not addressed to you! A confidential letter! Don't be unreasonable, Hector. It was quite natural for Mr Malone to open my letter. His name was on the envelope. There! You've no common sense, Hector. I thank you, Miss Robinson. I thank you, too. It's very kind of you. My father knows no better. Oh, Hector, I swear. Oh, it's no use Hectoring me. A private letter's a private letter, Dad. You can't get over that. I won't be talked back to by you, do you hear? Please, please, here they all come. Father and son, checked, glare mutely at one another. Tanner comes in through the little gate with Ramsden, followed by Octavius and Anne. Back already? The Alhambra's not open this afternoon. What a sell! Tanner finds himself between Hector and a strange elder, both apparently on the verge of personal combat. He looks from one to the other for an explanation. They sulkily avoid his eye and nurse their wrath in silence. Is it wise for you to be out in the sunshine with such a headache, Violet? Have you recovered too, Malone? Oh, we have not all met. Uh, Mr. Malone, won't you introduce your father? I will not. He is no father of mine. You disown your dad before your English friends, do you? Oh, please don't make a scene. Anne and Octavius exchange an astonished glance and discreetly withdraw the steps to the garden, where they can enjoy the disturbance without intruding. I'm contending for a principle. And when Dad treats my private letters as his own and takes it on himself to say that I shan't marry you, if I am happy and fortunate enough to gain your consent... Then I just snap my fingers and go on my own way. Mary Violet, are you in your senses? Do you forget what we told you? I don't care what you told me. Tut, tut, sir. Monstrous. Another madman. 
These men in love should be locked up. I don't understand this. Is Hector not good enough for this lady, pray? My dear sir, the lady is married already. Hector knows it, and yet he persists in his infatuation. Take him home and lock him up. So, this is the high-born social tone I've spoilt by my ignorant, uncultivated behaviour. Making love to a married woman. I'll answer for the morality of what I'm doing. Let me tell you, Mrs. Robinson, or whatever your right name is, you had no right to send that letter to my son when you were the wife of another man. This is the last straw. Dad, you have insulted my wife. Your wife? You, the missing husband? You've married without my consent. You have deliberately humbugged us, sir. Here! I have had just about enough of being badgered. Violet and I are married. That's the long and the short of it. Now, what have you got to say? Any of you? <laughs> I know what I've got to say. She's married a beggar. No, she's married a worker. I start to earn my own living this very afternoon. You're very plucky now, because you've got your remittance from me. Yesterday, or this morning, I reckon. Wait till it's spent. You won't be so full of cheek then. Here it is. Now you just take your remittance and yourself out of my life. I'm done with remittances and I'm done with you. Hector, you don't know what poverty is. Well, I want to know what it is. I want to be a man. Violet... You come along with me to your own home. I'll see you through. I hope you'll shake hands with me before you go, Hector. I admire and respect you more than I can say. Don't be an idiot, Tavy. Hector's about as fit to become a workman as you are. Never fear. There's no question of his becoming a worker, Mrs. Malone. There's really no difficulty about capital. Treat me as a friend. Draw on me. Or on me. Who wants your dirty money? <laughs> Who should he draw on but his own father? Oh. Don't be rash, my boy. <laughs> I'm sorry for what I said. I never meant to insult Violet. I take it all back. She's just the wife you want well, there. that's all right, Dad. Say no more. We're friends again. <sighs> Only I take no money from anybody. Oh, don't be hard on me, Hector. I'd rather you quarrelled and took the money than made friends and starved. You don't know what the world is. I do. No, no, no. That's fixed. That's not going to change. Come, Mrs. Malone. You've got to move to the hotel with me and take your proper place before the world. But I must go in, dear, and tell Davis to pack. Won't you go on and make them give you a room overlooking the garden for me? I'll join you in half an hour. Very well. You'll dine with us, Dad, yes, won't you? Yes, yes. <laughs> See you all later. And young Mr. Malone strides off, head held high. You'll try to bring him to his senses, Violet. I know you will. I had no idea he could be so headstrong. Don't be discouraged. Domestic pressure may be slow, but it's sure. You'll wear him down. Promise me you will. I will do my best. Of course, I think it's the greatest nonsense deliberately making us poor like that. Of course it is. You had better give me the remittance. He were wanted for his hotel bill. I'll see whether I can induce him to accept it. Not now, of course, but presently. Yes, yes, that's just the thing. <laughs> you understand, this is only a bachelor allowance. Oh, quite. Thank you. By the way, Mr Malone, those two houses you mentioned, the Abbeys? Yes. Don't take one of them until I've seen it. One never knows what may be wrong with these places. I won't. 
I'll do nothing without consulting you, never fear. Thanks. That will be much the best way. And with that, she goes triumphantly back to the villa. They all watch her leave, quite pleased and amazed. She'll be a grand wife for Hector. <laughs> I wouldn't exchange her for ten duchesses. It is an unexpected pleasure to find you in this corner of the world, Mr Malone. I'm Mr Roebuck Ramston, a very old friend of your daughter-in-law. Oh, happy to meet you, Mr Ramsden. Thank you. Mr Tanner is also one of our circle. Glad to know you also, Mr Tanner. Thanks. Uh, may we show you to the house? And Ramsden, Malone and Tanner go out very amicably, leaving only Anne and Tavy in the garden. Won't you go with them, Tavy? You cut me to the heart, Anne, by wanting me to go. Poor Ricky Ticky Tavy. Poor heart. It belongs to you, Anne. Forgive me. I love you. You know I love you. What's the good, Tavy? My mother is determined that I shall marry Jack. Jack? It seems absurd, doesn't it? Do you mean to say that Jack has been playing with me all this time? That he has been urging me not to marry you because he intends to marry you himself? No, I don't for a moment think that Jack knows his own mind. But it's clear from my father's will that he wished me to marry Jack and my mother is set on it. But you are not bound to sacrifice yourself always to the wishes of your parents. Surely their wishes are a better guide than my own selfishness. Oh, I know how unselfish you are. But believe me, though I know I'm speaking in my own interest, is it fair to Jack to marry him if you do not love him? Is it fair to destroy my happiness and your own if you can bring yourself to love me? Tavy, my dear, you are a nice creature, a good boy. Is that all? That's a great deal, I assure you. You would always worship the ground I trod on, wouldn't you? I do. It sounds ridiculous, but it's no exaggeration. I do, and I always shall. Then I should have to live up always to your idea of my divinity. And I don't think I could do that if we were married. But if I marry Jack, you'll never be disillusioned, at least not until I grow too old. I too shall grow old, Anne. And when I am eighty... One white hair of the woman I love will make me tremble more than the thickest gold tress from the most beautiful young head. Oh, that's poetry, Tavy, real poetry. Do you believe that it is true? Tavy, if it is to become true, you must lose me as well as love me. Oh. Tavy, I wouldn't for worlds destroy your illusions. You must be a sentimental old bachelor for my sake. Anne, I'll kill myself. No, you won't. That wouldn't be kind. You won't have a bad time. You will be very nice to women, and you will go a good deal to the opera. A broken heart is a very pleasant complaint for a man in London, if he has a comfortable income. I know you mean to be kind, Anne. Jack has persuaded you that cynicism is a good tonic for me. You see, I'm disillusioning you already. That's what I dread. You do not dread disillusioning Jack. I can't. He has no illusions about me. I shall surprise Jack the other way. Getting over an unfavourable impression is ever so much easier than living up to an ideal. Oh, I shall enrapture Jack sometimes. I do not doubt that. 
You shall enrapture him always. And he, the fool, thinks you would make him wretched. Yes, that's the difficulty so far. Shall I tell him you love him? Oh no, he'd run away again. Anne, would you marry an unwilling man? There's no such thing as a willing man when you really go for him. You are very foolish about women, Tavy. I am content to be what I am in that respect. Then you must keep away from them. I wouldn't marry you for worlds, Tavy. I have no hope, but I don't think you quite know how much it hurts. You are so soft-hearted. It's queer that you should be so different from Violet. Violet's as hard as nails. Oh, no. I'm sure Violet is thoroughly womanly at heart. Why do you say that? Is it unwomanly to be thoughtful and businesslike and sensible? Do you want Violet to be an idiot or something worse, like me? Something worse? Like you? What What do you mean? Oh, well, I don't mean that, of course. But I have a great respect for Violet. She gets her own way, always. So do you? Yes, but she gets it without having to make people sentimental about her. Ha! Huh. Nobody could get very sentimental about Violet, I think, pretty as she is. Oh, yes, they could, if she made them. But surely no really nice woman would deliberately practice on men's instincts in that way. Oh, Tavy, Tavy, fricky, ticky Tavy. Heaven help the woman who marries you. Why? Why? Why do you say that to me? Don't torment me. I don't understand. Suppose she were to tell fibs and lay snares for men. Do you think I could love such a woman? I who have known and loved you. Poetic to the last. Goodbye, dear. <gasps> and she leaves poor Tavy, weeping <sighs> in the garden. To be discovered by Mrs. Whitefield, returning from a shopping excursion. Oh, what's the matter, Tavy? Are you ill? No, nothing. Nothing. Oh, but you're crying. Oh, is it about Violet's marriage? No, no. Who told you about Violet? I met Roebuck and that awful old Irishman. Are you sure you're not ill? Oh, what's the matter? It's nothing. Only a broken heart. Oh. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Well, but, but what is it all about? Oh, has Anne been doing anything to you? It's not Anne's fault. Hmm. And don't for a moment think I blame you. Me? For what? I dare say you are right to prefer Jack to me. But it hurts rather. Does Anne say that I want her to marry Jack? Yes. She has told me. Oh. Well, then, I am very sorry for you, Tavy. It's only her way of saying she wants to marry Jack. Little she cares what I say or what I want. But she would not say it unless she believed it. Oh. Surely you don't suspect Anne of... of deceit? Well, never mind, Tavy. I don't know which is best for a young man, to know too little like you, or too much like Jack. And with that, Tanner returns again. Uh, well, I've disposed of old Malone. Uh, hello, Tavy. Anything wrong? Oh, I must go wash my face, I see. Mrs. Whitefield, you may tell him what you wish. You may take it from me, Jack, that Anne approves of it. 
approves of what? Of what Mrs Whitefield wishes. Farewell. And Tavy goes, broken heart and all. This is very mysterious. What is it you wish? It shall be done, whatever it is. Oh, thank you, Jack. I don't know why it is that other people's children are so nice to me and that my own have so little consideration for me. But what am I to do for you? Well, of course, you'll marry Anne, whether I like it myself or not. It seems that I shall presently be married to Anne, whether I like it or not. Oh, very likely you will. You know what she is. Uh, But don't put the blame on me. That's all I ask. I haven't the slightest intention of marrying her. Mm, Well, she'd suit you better than Tavy. She'd meet her match in you, Jack. Oh, I'd like to see her meet her match. And at all events, you would tell her the truth about herself. She wouldn't be able to slip out of it as she does with me. Everybody would call me a brute if I told Anne the truth about herself in terms of her own moral code. (sighs) To begin with, Anne says things that are not strictly true. Hmm. I'm glad somebody sees she's not an angel. In short, to put it as a husband would put it when exasperated at the point of speaking out, she is a liar. (laughs) And as she has plunged Tavy head over ears in love with her without any intention of marrying him, She is a coquette. And as she has now reduced you to the point of being willing to sacrifice me at the altar for the mere satisfaction of getting me to call her a liar to her face, I may conclude she is a bully as well. She can't bully men as she bullies women. So she habitually and unscrupulously uses her personal fascination to make men give her whatever she wants. That makes her almost something for which I know no polite name. Well, you can't expect perfection, Jack. I don't. But what annoys me is that Anne does. We all lie. We all bully as much as we dare, and we all get as much as we can out of our powers of fascination. If Anne would admit this, I shouldn't quarrel with her. But she won't. She will do just what she likes herself, whilst insisting on everybody else playing by the conventional codes. In short, I can stand everything except her confession. Founded hypocrisy. That's what beats me. Oh, yes, she is a hypocrite. Oh, she is. She is, isn't she? Then why do you want to marry me to her? Oh, there now. I never thought of it until Tavy told me that she said I did. But it is a good idea. You are able to take care of yourself anyway. You'd serve her out. And anyhow, she must marry somebody. Ah, there speaks the life instinct. You detest her, but you feel you must get her married. Do you mean that I detest my own daughter? Well, surely you don't believe me to be so wicked and unnatural as that merely because I see her faults. You love her, then? Why, of course I do. Oh, what queer things you say, Jack. We can't help loving our own blood relations. Anne comes in, followed presently by Violet, who is dressed for driving. Well, Mama, darling, you seem to be having a delightful chat with Jack. Well, we can hear you have all you over overheard? What? Never fear. Anne is only... Well, we were discussing that habit of hers just now. She hasn't heard a word. Well, I don't care whether she has or not. I have a right to say what I please. I've come to say goodbye. I'm off for my honeymoon. Oh, don't say that, Violet. No wedding, no breakfast, no clothes, nor anything. It won't be for long. No. Oh, don't let him take you to America. 
promise me that you won't. I should think not, indeed. <laughs> Don't cry. I'm only going to the hotel. Oh, but going in that dress with your luggage makes one realise. Oh, how I wish you were my daughter, Violet. There, there. Anne will be jealous. No, Anne doesn't care one bit for me. Come now, Mother. You mustn't cry anymore. You know Violet doesn't like it. Goodbye, Jack. Goodbye, Violet. The sooner you get married, the better. You will be much less misunderstood. I quite expect to get married in the course of the afternoon. You all seem to have set your minds on... You might do worse. <laughs> Let me take you to the hotel with me. The drive will do you good. Come in and get a wrap. No, I don't know what I shall do when you are gone, Violet, with nobody but Anne in the house, and she always occupied with the men. And off they go. Anne and Tanner have, at long last, been left alone. Violet is quite right. You ought to get married. Anne, I will not marry you. Do you hear? I won't, won't, won't marry you. Well, nobody asked you, sir, she said, sir, she said, sir, she said. So that's settled. Yes, nobody has asked me, but everybody treats the thing as settled. Ramsden no longer scowls at me. Tavy gives me his blessing. Straker openly treats you as his future employer. It was he who first told me of it. Was that why you ran away? Yes, only to be run down like a truant schoolboy. Well, if you don't want to be married, you needn't be. We do the world's will, not our own. I have a frightful feeling I shall let myself be married simply because it is the world's will you should have a husband. I dare say I shall, someday. But why me? Me of all men? Marriage is to me apostasy. Profanation of the sanctuary of my soul. Shameful surrender. Ignominious capitulation. I shall change from a man with a future to a man with a past. I shall see in the greasy eyes of all the other husbands their relief at the arrival of a new prisoner to share their ignominy. The young men will scorn me as one who has sold out to the young women. I, who have always been an enigma and a possibility, shall be merely somebody else's property and damaged goods at that. A second-hand man at best. Well, your wife can put on a cap and bake herself ugly to keep you in countenance like my grandmother. So that she may make our triumph more insolent by publicly throwing away the bait the moment the trap snaps on the victim. What difference would it make? Beauty is all very well at first sight, but whoever looks at it when it has been in the house for three days... I thought our pictures very lovely when Papa bought them, but I haven't looked at them for years... You never bother about my looks. You are too well used to me. I might as well be the umbrella stand. You lie, you vampire, you lie. Flatterer, why are you trying to fascinate me, Jack, if you don't want to marry me? The life force! I am in the grip of the life force. I don't understand in the least. It sounds like the life gods. Why don't you marry Tavy? He is willing. Can you not be satisfied unless your prey struggles? Tavy will never marry. Haven't you noticed that that sort of man never marries? What? A man who idolizes women? Who sees nothing in nature but romantic scenery for love duets? Tavy never marry. Why, he was born to be swept up by the first pair of blue eyes he meets in the street. Yes, I know. All the same, Jack, men like that always live in comfortable bachelor lodgings with broken hearts and are adored by their landladies and never get married. 
Men like you always get married. How frightfully, horribly true. It has been staring me in the face all my life, and I never saw it before. It's the same with women. The poetic temperaments are very nice temperament, very amiable, very harmless and poetic, I dare say, but it's an old maid's temperament. Baron, the life force passes it by. If that's what you mean by the life force, then yes. You don't care for Tavy. No. And you do care for me. No, Jack, behave yourself. Turn from this abandoned woman, devil. Boa constrictor. Hypocrite. I must be for my future husband's sake. For mine? I mean for his. Yes, for yours. You had better marry what you call a hypocrite, Jack. Women who are not hypocrites go about in irrational dress and are insulted and get into all sorts of hot water. And then their husbands get dragged into and live in continual dread of fresh complications. Wouldn't you prefer a wife you could depend on? No, a thousand times no. Hot water is the revolutionist element. You clean men as you clean milk pails by scalding them. Cold water has its uses too. It's healthy. Oh, you are witty. At the supreme moment, the life force endows you with every quality. Well, I too can be a hypocrite. Your father's will appointed me your guardian, not your suitor. I shall be faithful to my trust. He asked me who I'd have as my guardian before he made that will. I chose you. The will is yours, then. The trap was laid from the beginning. From the beginning. From our childhood. For both of us. By the life force. I will not marry you. I will not marry you. Oh, you will. You will. I tell you no, no, no. I tell you yes, yes, yes. No. Yes. Before it is too late for repentance. Yes. Are we too dreaming? No. We are awake and you have said no. That is all. Well? Well, I have made a mistake. You do not love me. But with that, he suddenly sweeps her into his arms. It is false. I love you. The life force enchants me. I have the whole world in my arms when I clasp you. But I am fighting for my freedom, for my honor, for myself, one and indivisible. Your happiness will be worth them all. You would sell freedom and honor and self for happiness. Take care. If anyone comes while we are like this, you will have to marry me. If we stood now on the edge of a precipice, I would hold you tight and jump. Let me go. I've dared so frightfully. Let me go. I can't bear it. Nor I. Let it kill us. Yes. I don't care. I am at the end of my forces. I think I am going to faint. At this very moment, Violet, Octavius, and Mrs. Whitefield come from the villa. While Malone, Ramsden, and Straker come in through the little gate. Tanner releases Anne, who totters and raises her hand giddily to her forehead. Take care. <gasps> Something's the matter with the lady. Oh. What does this mean? Anne, are you ill? I, I have promised to marry Jack. <sighs> and she swoons. They all instantly swarm around her. Oh, 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 do be careful. Now then, ladies and gentlemen, she don't want a crowd around her. She wants air, all the air she can get. If you please, gents, don't lift her head, Mr Tanner. Let her go flat so the blood can run back into it. I yield to your superior knowledge of physiology, Henry. Jack has a hold of her wrist and is feeling her pulse. No, don't worry. I, I'm quite happy. Why, her pulse is positively bounding. Come, get up. 
What nonsense! And he vigorously hauls a smiling Anne to her feet. Yes, I feel strong enough now. But you very nearly killed me, Jack, for all that. I congratulate you, Miss Whitefield. And you also, Mr. Tanner. And I hope you both will be frequent guests at the Abbey. Thank you, Mr. Malone. You are a happy man, Jack Tanner. I envy you. Ramsden, it is very easy for you to call me a happy man. You are only a spectator. I am one of the principals, and I know better. Anne whispers sweetly to the drooping Tavy. Ricky Ticky Tavy, congratulate me. I want to make you cry for the last time. No more tears. I am happy in your happiness. Anne, stop tempting Tavy and come back to me. You are absurd, Jack. But she comes back to him and takes his proffered arm. I solemnly say that I'm not a happy man. Oh, Mr. Anne looks happy, but she's only triumphant. What we have both done this afternoon is to renounce tranquility. Above all, renounce the romantic possibilities of an unknown future for the cares of a household and a family. I beg that no man may seize the occasion to get half drunk and utter imbecile speeches and coarse pleasantries at my expense. Oh, no, quite. We propose to furnish our own house according to our own taste. And I hereby give notice that the seven or eight traveling clocks, the salad bowls, and all the other articles you're preparing to heap upon us will be instantly sold. What? And the proceeds devoted to circulating free copies of the Revolutionist's Handbook. Oh, you are a brute, Jack. Oh, Never Jack. mind her, dear. Go on talking. Talking? <laughs> End of play. End of play. Man and Superman by George Bernard Shaw was presented by the Shakespeare Theatre Company's Academy for Classical Acting at George Washington University and was directed by Aaron Posner. With actors Joshua Bolden as Jack Tanner, Christy Corin as Mrs. Whitefield, Shayna Friedman as Miss Ramsden, Claire Ani Richards as Violet Robinson, Tyler Jones as Hector Malone Jr., Michael McDonald as Octavius Robinson, Jewel Nelson Duack as narrator Quintus, Morgan Pavey as narrator Fabius. Samuel Ritchie as Roebuck Ramsden, Derek Utley as Henry Straker, Petraea Whittier as Anne Whitefield, and Dan Wilson as Hector Malone Sr. Voice and dialect coach Lisa Belay, sound designer Gordon Nimmo-Smith, and adaptation by Aaron Posner. Lead sponsorship support for the Academy for Classical Acting provided by Dr. Julie M. Feinsilver. The ACA repertory season is generously sponsored by Arthur and Shirley Ferguson. Additional support for Man and Superman provided by Jeffrey P. Quinard and Mareko Akihara, Marcel C. La Follette, Jeffrey K. Stein, and an anonymous friend of the ACA. To learn more about the actors in the Academy, please visit our website at www.aca.shakespeartheatre.org. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.